So I was born in Miami, Florida, and my parents moved there from Indianapolis, Indiana to plant a church. And they were church planting with a movement called the Vineyard, this sort of charismatic, hippie-influenced, really popular church movement, especially in the 80s. And my parents moved there in 85 to plant a vineyard church. They planted the Miami Vineyard. I was born there in 89. And then in the early 90s, we moved back to Indianapolis, uh, where my dad planted another church, and he's still pastoring there today. I grew up in that church movement. Um, my dad's church was probably the first real, like, attractional mega church on the south side of Indianapolis, where we did, you know, whole stage set designs and had a whole drama and production team in the late 90s, early 2000s, and so especially after when 9-11 happened, it just exploded exponentially even more. It was already rapidly growing, but in the early 2000s, we got to be 3,500, 4,000 people on a weekend, um, five celebrations, couldn't call them services. They were celebrations. And um, luckily I had a really good pastor's kid experience. Um, I wasn't too monitored in a lot of ways. Um, I was able to listen to a lot of music that my peers weren't allowed to listen to. Um, I talked my mom into buying me the Limp Biscuit chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water whenever I was in fifth grade. I don't know how I did that. Persuasion. Um, listened to Cannibal Corpse and played in death metal bands and uh, yeah, I had a much different childhood Christian experience. And I feel very fortunate for that. Uh, it wasn't super dogmatic with all the five. Sometimes at one point in time, we had six celebrations on a weekend. Uh, my family, my sister, my mom and I were only allowed to go to one celebration. Uh, my dad did not want us to get burnt out. He didn't want us to be, you know, too involved because he didn't want us to get fried on it all. And I really appreciate that because my dad was a, you know, hippie, druggy trucker before he got saved in the Jesus people movement. So he was aware of the real world and things and wasn't insulated. You know, my grandparents didn't come to faith until their forties, you know? So I say all this to say that, you know, I grew up in the church, but I want to honestly say, you know, some of my trauma and baggage um, isn't as severe and as deep as, as some of those that I'm about to speak to. And so just wanted to set that stage a little bit that, uh, I, I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in the church and there were certainly a lot of things that I was indoctrinated with, of course, you know, scared of the rapture at a young age and, you know, clear belief that Jesus is the only way that other religions or spiritualities are demonic, you know, being charismatic and, you know, that vineyard world, obviously it was a lot of spiritual warfare and fear around a lot of that. So influenced with that for sure, but not to the degree that some of my more like Southern Baptist friends are, you know, influenced, uh, indoctrinated things of that nature. And so I want to just set that stage to say that I've had to express a lot of empathy to the people that I've done spiritual direction with who have gone through some pretty traumatic and intense experiences as they have deconstructed some of these really strict and strenuous narratives that have been deeply embedded into their life and their formation when they were really young. Because whenever I was really young, I, I had quite a lot of flexibility for being a mega church pastor's kid. Um, so I admit that, um, but as I went on my journey in my teenage years, you know, kept playing in hardcore death metal bands, you know, lots of stage dives and, you know, stuff and, and wildness, uh, late night waffle house runs, you know, you know how it goes. Um, started smoking some weed in high school, of course. And, uh, like a good musician does. And uh, something clicked, though. I wasn't able to graduate from my public school. It's another thing. I went to public school. 
Um, a lot of pastors' kids are homeschooled or they go to private school. I went to a really big public school in uh, Greenwood, Indiana. And I was exposed to a lot of things there, of course. And um, my wife and I both have some drug addicts in our family. So even while we were exposed to, I was exposed to more heavier drugs in high school, I never participated in, you know, the Coke or anything like that. So um, I didn't go down that route like some of my friends did, but exposed to it at least and exposed to just a completely different way of living that wasn't so insulated like my church world was. Um, but I couldn't graduate on time from that school. I was going to be a fifth year senior. And so I uh, transferred to a Christian school that was actually meeting in the church building that, that my dad had, the church had rather. And uh, it was like two less credits, but to still be like state you know, regulated graduation. And so I had to transfer to this school. I did night school. I had to drive downtown every Tuesdays and Thursdays to catch up on all this stuff that I'd slacked off on and uh, to graduate on time. But what's interesting is that I, for the first time, was introduced to the Bible in a way that I never experienced before. Because while I was a pastor's kid, my dad is a very, like, Billy Graham sort of preacher, you know, it's like John three sixteen, very simple life hack sort of stuff. And, you know, it was a lot of production. It's a lot of my dad riding Harleys and on the stage and set designs with people swinging from ropes and, you know, all sorts of the wild mega church attractional church that was really popular 20 years ago, you know? So I didn't really get a deep like Bible understanding you know, because with grace and compassion, I say this, my dad's not really a deep Bible theologian type of guy. You know, it was very much like him sharing his own redemption story and inviting people into accepting Jesus. And that was pretty much it. And we were known as the surface level church and my dad was okay with that. Um, my dad was really annoyed and still is annoyed with the discipleship term and phrase. He's like, people get obsessed with discipleship. He's all about conversion and what have you. But for the first time I was exposed to a real like Bible class in my senior year. And the teacher, Mr. Nanny was his name, uh, started sharing with us. We started going through the New Testament and even talked about extra biblical things. He talked about the Nag Hammadi scriptures, even as well as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's really bizarre because it's a very conservative school. So I learned about all of these other gospels. I learned that there was a gospel of Thomas. I learned that there were all of these other writings that were not included into the canonization. Uh, I also, he explained that the canonization was a very long drawn out process of men in power making clear decisions about what is and is not to be included in this book. And it really opened my eyes in a different way to the Bible. And uh, I'm really grateful for that teacher being so open and honest about all of the extra biblical things. But he still came back to the truth that the Holy Spirit was in that and that, you know, it was... Uh, still divine and God's work and, and this, that, and the third. But uh, he dismissed them, but I still learned about it, you know? And something sparked in me for the first time. I really began interested in, in ministry. My dad had asked me a couple years before if I would ever be interested in being a pastor and eventually taking over the church one day. I was 16 years old at this time. I was probably stoned when he asked me that. My dream at that point in time was to go on tour uh, with other bands that I looked up to at that time, it would have been like despised icon and the red cord and the acacia strain and, you know, all these death metal bands, hardcore bands, you know, and I was like dead set. Now I'm going to play drums in a touring hardcore band, death metal band. Why would I want to be a boring pastor? You know, but I'd always been interested in the depths. I've always been interested in, in philosophy and concepts and things. Um, but that, stuck with me. And, and I revisited that whenever I was in this Bible class. It's like, my dad did ask me if I wanted to be a pastor one day. And 
I started to really read Romans uh, with this study Bible my mom bought me for my Bible class. And I got really, really interested in, in Christianity then and following Jesus, like for, for myself, for the first time. And while it didn't fully take root, because I still was doing behavior-wise and morality-wise, I was still doing my own thing, in my mind space and in my heart space, I really became intrigued with these ideas, especially these Pauline ideas, because it was so clear-cut and obviously, you know, very Greco-Roman in nature. So it was easy for me to understand, and it was pretty cut and dry, clear-cut, you know. So it was easy to just, like, parse out what is what through Paul's teachings. And I think that's why people in America and the West really gravitate to Paul's teachings, because it's extremely decisive and clear for the the type of culture and society that, that we still live in today, the things that have built Western world, the Western world is, is really, you know, how Paul writes in his style. So we gravitate to that. And so while I was living still like, you know, sleeping around and all these things with, you know, with my girlfriend who later became my wife. So I guess not sleeping around, but you know, whatever, living my own stuff. I still became increasingly intrigued with, you know, Christian theology. So I was uh, graduated, was working at FedEx at the airport, lifting boxes all day. And after working there for a while, I felt like there was something more to life. And I was driving my little tug, and I felt like the Spirit invite me to go to Youth with a Mission, uh, YWAM. My cousin had went to Denver, and my dad had a friendship with the Orlando YWAM because they were first in Miami when he was there. And they moved up to Orlando because nobody wanted to send their kids to Miami because all the you know cocaine stuff that was going on in the 80s and 90s. So... They moved to Orlando because people think Disney when they think Orlando and they're more apt to send their, you know, fresh out of high school kids for all these Pentecostal conservatives, you know? So I decided that I wanted to go to YWAM Orlando and shared with my fiance at the time. And she was not stoked on that. She just got into the hair industry and became a stylist and was building her career. And here I am wanting to go hang out with a bunch of you know, weird Christian folks. Um, but she came around to it. We got married and um, all of our wedding money went to go to pay for our discipleship training school. And uh, we went down to Orlando and through that process was really then more deeply exposed to Christian theology and, and faith and things. And there's this one guy that dropped in one day. He used to be on staff there and he i don't know he just had a connection he dropped in he was owned a landscape business then but he was also like a part-time youth pastor and he dropped in for this new dts crew that came through to see if anybody wanted to volunteer with the youth and me and him just really connected so i went started playing drums at their worship thing. And he was really into this dude named Mark Driscoll. And I was hot on just the Bible and learning and going through, I mean, you go at eight in the morning, Monday through Friday, worship, and then are in like intensive classes for the whole day. And then you go and like clean shit in the afternoons and That's what you do in your first phase, the first three months of a discipleship training school. It's all spiritual practices and like further indoctrination, you know, but he was really into this guy named Mark Driscoll and he was a Calvinist and into reformed theology. And so I was very moldable and influenced and coming from the, um, like the the hardcore underground music scene where it's very much like aggressive and in your face. Mark Driscoll had this like 
hardcore vocalist front man vibe to him. Like just, you know, on Sunday mornings, essentially like, let's open this pit. You know what I mean? Like just really bold and brash and uh, aggressive. And he reminded me of like a death metal vocalist, you know, and it just had an aggressive nature that my young self just really needed. And my dad was so like Rick Warren, almost Joel Osteen-ish, very like, you know, Andy Stanley-like and, you know, very balanced and wasn't really that deep. And I met with Mark Triscoll, who's deep into theology and has this very clear awareness of who he is and who the enemy is and all of this and mix that with just this young testosterone of a, you know, hardcore drummer. And I'm just ready to, you know, beat people down, you know, and it just clicked. And it was like, man, this militant version of Christianity was like extremely enticing. So I started listening to the podcasts and, and, you know, this is 2010. So this is early in all of that world. And they were one of the first, if you watch the, or listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, they're some of the first with the media game with church stuff. And so I'm from a very early time and formation at 21 years old, listening to Mark Driscoll, just being informed about this whole reformed Calvinistic, you know, worldview, um, of reading the Bible. Literally I went out and bought it. English Standard Version, ESV, the Elect Standard Version. Got really just into it, man. I mean, really deeply into it. Um, and we left YWAM. I felt like we weren't supposed to go on the missions portion of it. We went to a vineyard conference with my parents in Phoenix. And that's where I met the person who would then connect me to San Diego, where I live now. And... I just spent those years, you know, 2010, 11, 12, just soaking in Calvinism. I mean, reading the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, you know, just John Piper and uh, Matt Chandler, the whole Acts 29 thing. And, and I was convinced then that I was going to plant an Acts 29 church. Because whenever I was in Youth with a Mission, I felt like the Spirit told me I was going to be a church planter. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. And felt excited about that. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and that just really meshed really well. My dad was a business owner before he went and planted his churches. And, you know, it just was, it felt like it was in my DNA. My grandpa has been a serial, uh, not church plant, a serial entrepreneur. My dad has been to, it just felt right. Felt like that was my future. And I felt so clear that I knew the truth felt so, so evidently obvious of what God's plan of salvation was for humanity. And I felt like I was so equipped through my communication ability and all of this stuff, strength finders, communication was like my top thing. And it just felt like the stars aligned, you know, and I was so, it was so clear. And then I start preaching because I then became the youth pastor at my dad's church and I began preaching on the weekends to people, you know, more than double, triple my age. And I had all of this knowledge because I love, I'm curious, I love to learn and I'm reading and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to Mark Driscoll. I mean, like it's the word of God, man. I mean, I'm, I'm soaking in all these people. I'm reading these books. I'm listening to these podcasts. And then I'm given this platform at this large church to go and try out all of the things that I'm learning and feeling and wanting to articulate. And so here I am, and it's my dad's dream, you know, he thinks I'm, he, my dad thinks it's so funny now, my dad thinks I'm a little too harsh and conservative. So he's always telling me like, lighten up a little bit, don't be so aggressive, be a little bit more palatable for these people, you know? Cause that was always his thing, you know, just three points to a better biblical marriage. You know, that's my dad. So I'm up on stage riffing and ranting with all of my Calvinistic elect stuff, 
just regurgitating Mark Driscoll. And then something happened to me whenever I was coming back from Costa Rica in 2012. And it started to break for the, the two-year stint of Mark Driscoll obsession started to kind of bust up a little bit. And the voice started to become redundant to me. And I started to, I finally put together the pieces of Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. I started to finally see its, its cohesion and I started to see as a concept how it fully came together. But something just started to feel not good about it. Like all of that very rigid, strict, harsh, just masculine force, just really I, deep down. It always felt uncertain. It always felt like, again, I was like in the middle of like a breakdown and a hardcore song. But I also had this other part of me that really loved beautiful post-rock music, that really loved cinematic music, that liked Radiohead and all of these other bands. And at some point you're like, you know, I think I'm ready to change the CD out. I'm dating myself, of course, but I'm ready to listen to a different song. I, I feel like I've heard this song enough. And it started to bust up on my plane ride back from Costa Rica. And I think it was because I saw just the beauty and the innocence of some of these back small little podunk churches in the hillsides of Costa Rica and the dirt floors. And, you know, now Costa Rica is so popular with all the plant medicine and all this stuff. But where I went, my dad spoke at the Central America Vineyard Conference. So they had him come down and I came with him and just seeing people humanity beyond concepts <clears throat> just beginning to see people beyond uh, all of the the ideas that we have and just seeing just how sweet people are and just how vulnerable each of us are. And now I have language for it. You know, it's just that we're just clinging so badly for some sense of security because of our insecure self is just fearful all the time. And when we see a figure it doesn't matter who it is. If it's Mark Triscoll or John Wimber from the Vineyard or, or Joel Osteen, it doesn't matter who it is. It, it's someone that seems like they have some sort of grip on reality and we feel a degree of okayness by believing what they're saying and just seeing just the humanity behind that, that we are all so vulnerable because this whole experience of being a human is so void and, and unknown and so finite and so impermanent that we're so scared that we just grip and cling towards anything that we can. And for, for a second, I finally began to see just the, the, the sheer beautiful intimacy rawness of, of the human experience behind all of these concepts that have been filling my head for years. And it just began to burst this Calvinistic, cold, hard, rigid, exclusive bullshit. <clears throat> and so I remember that it, it took a little bit for that to transition. I had a home, I bought a home. And so I was mowing my grass one day and I remember listening to John Piper and I just turned it off and I'm just like, fuck this. I'm an, I'm over it, man. And, um, I remember, uh, I don't know why Rob Bell just popped into my head whenever, not just now, but then. And whenever I was in YWAM, Love Wins came out. And that was super controversial. And, and everyone was just taking a shit on Rob Bell at YWAM, that he's a heretic and he's this and he's that and whatever. And I just jumped on the bandwagon. I was naive, I was moldable, I was young, I didn't know any better. I was being influenced by Mark Driscoll and my person who was discipling me. 
I was taught and told to think Rob Bell was evil. So I did. But I remember mowing my grass and Rob Bell came to my mind and my soul and it was just like cool breeze on a warm day. Just, it's like, ah, I remember I used to love his Numa videos. And uh, around that same time, I had a friend that was on staff at the church with us who was kind of into Reformed theology too. And he recommended a, a podcast called The Reformed Pubcast. And I remember listening to it in bed one night. And I was not into it. And he said, just give it a few episodes. And I remember I was like listening to like, it was my third time listening to it. But I'm like, honestly, like, no offense. These guys are fucking nerds. Like, they're, I don't like, I don't vibe with them at all, you know? And I remember they had Joey from the Bad Christian podcast on. Because they were going to talk to him about why he thinks it's okay to cuss. I'm like, fuck, this would be a good one to check out. <laughs> and um, so I'm listening to it and I'm like, Joey is so much cooler than these other nerds. Like I should listen to the bad Christian podcast. And so I started listening to the bad Christian podcast. And then I felt like I started to find my people. And you know, uh, what's the other dude? Uh, Toby, right? Toby was a, a worship leader at Mars Hill and he had left Mars Hill. So he had language for leaving Mark Driscoll and all of that too. And they played an Emory and I loved solid state and tooth and nail bands. And I used to listen to Emory and, you know, a little too emo for me. I liked more of like the Norma Jean vibes, you know, but, um, you know, the chariot and things like that. But anyways, um, I thought I found my people and they were deconstructing and all of this. And so I remember I was only a few episodes in and I, at the end of the episode, they said, and on the next episode, Joey's going to tell us why he doesn't believe in hell anymore. And we're going to tell him why he's lost his mind, you know? And I'm like, whoa, not believe in hell. Okay. Okay. Like that's, that's definitely pushing my boundaries, you know? And so I couldn't wait for next week's episode to come out. And so I listened to that episode, that next episode. And it, he, he referenced a, another podcast. Um, I'm spacing the name of it right now um, about annihilationism. And so he came out as saying that he was an annihilationist, meaning after you die, if you've not received Jesus, poof, you're gone. You know, um, the book from Edward Fudge is called the fire that consumes. And that's what this other podcast was kind of all built around, you know, this annihilationist idea. So I started binging that podcast. And before you know it, I was like, yeah, totally annihilationist because whenever I was really deep in the Calvinist mindset, I remember one morning in my home office reading the verse that was supposed to be the slam dunk verse for the existence of hell. And it was the verse where the rich guy is, you know, in hell. And Lazarus is supposed to be in heaven, you know, and, and he's begging for a drop of water to be on his tongue, you know, and whatever. I just remember reading that and thinking something deep within me is just saying, I still just am not sure that this eternal conscious torment thing is real. It never fully resonated with me. I used to bark about it on stage to people. But something deep within me just knew that it wasn't, wasn't right. It's the divine in you calling love out. And uh, so whenever I heard this, I was remembering like, man, I knew that hell, the doctrine of hell was not a thing. I knew that. I freaking knew that deep in my soul. And now I had a theological argument for it. And I remember uh, one of my dad's old friends who I'd known for years, who lives in India, has a vineyard church in India, was visiting. And we were at a Mexican restaurant and we were all riffing one night and just kind of talking, well, what you've been reading, you know, what's this? What He's a professor in India at a, you know, theology um, seminary, teaches theology, uh, Old Testament theology at a seminary. He wrote a whole commentary on Leviticus that's popular and, you know, one of those kind of guys, sweet guy but very rigid. Uh, he won't show that as much, but he is, but I love him still. 
And I remember talking about to my dad and, and our friend from India about this concept of annihilationism in contrast to eternal conscious torment. And I remember my dad had his hands over his face. Just, I cannot believe my son is saying what he's saying. He was just mortified that I would even be bringing this up, you know? And I just thought it would be okay to have dialogue around different theologies about things, you know? Not everybody, there's, this stuff is not written in stone like we think. And he was just so mortified. And so, you know, I, I really began to feel the misunderstanding from my father, which I had felt since I was a kid anyways. And whenever I found my rigid view of Christianity, it connected us in a way that I had always longed for, that I'd always felt a disconnection from my dad to certain things. The way that I see and feel and move in the world is so different than him, but similar at the same time. It's really weird. It's like the same, but different. Um, and I began in that moment to know that there, what I thought I was clinging on to in that relationship was beginning to dissolve. And there was a, the initial cut of separation there. You know, my wife actually had a dream of, of this saw cutting a mountain, you know, and, and I felt like, oh, okay, I'm, I feel like I'm being separated from what I feel like is stable. That's how I interpreted that. And so, uh, I still had this desire to plant the church though. And at this point I was already planning to move to San Diego to plant the church. And I was entering into this deep deconstruction of really reconsidering what I hold to be true, really throwing out all of that conservative Calvinistic bullshit and still wanting though and longing for this uh, church planting expression that had been in my heart for so long. And so I continued to go through with church planting and you know, got released to, to go and we sold our home and sold a bunch of stuff, gave things away. We loaded up a uh, Pinsky truck, put our car on the back and uh, headed out for San Diego. And we came to San Diego in uh, March of 2016 to plant uh, Current Collective Church. Um, started working at a motorcycle dealership Matter of fact, whenever I first moved out, I didn't even have a place to live. Uh, whenever I first drove out, my wife and kids are staying at my in-laws and uh, had some kids, by the way, in this time frame. I thought if I had a kid that would root me down into Indiana, I thought, man, if I had a kid that'll root me down. If I buy nice cars, that'll make me feel good. You know, so we had BMWs and Infinity. I had an Infinity in the driveway. My wife had a BMW. We bought a nice 2,100 square foot house and had full Cadillac insurance coverage and I had to speak it on the weekend and as the youth pastor and rebuilt this youth group and all this stuff, you know, um, but I knew that there was something calling for me in San Diego, even though my beliefs were really shifting. So we sold one, sold the BMW and the infinity, bought a Mazda and, uh, loaded up all of our stuff had one child, ended up having a second child, you know, to and through at this point. But um, I had a six-month-old son, a daughter that just turned two, no college degree outside of my uh, biblical training, and, uh, you know, a little bit of money in my pocket and, you know, wide-eyed big dreams, all while doubting that I even believed that any of this was true. Drive across the country, jump on my Harley, ride around town trying to find a place to live, trying to find a job, and uh, finally found an apartment that was like more than double our mortgage was. Uh, finally found a job that didn't pay all of that much, um, selling motorcycles. That's always been a staple and a connection for my dad and I. Uh, vintage bikes, dirt bikes, Harleys, whatever. And... We all move out then, and uh, after about six months, five months, 
I'm like really over the dealership life, you know, but I'm listening to podcasts like nonstop. And it was around this time that I had really started to develop mindfulness meditation. I began to be open to more contemplative practices. And it's only because I didn't have a morning practice anymore. And one morning I was uh, waiting on the Holy Spirit. That's what I was taught in my, uh, you know, vineyard charismatic tradition. And I had not done that in a long time because I had been so focused on the mind of theology and learning this conservative thing and then really starting to deconstruct in a lot of ways. And so that's still just mental gymnastics. For the first time, what I felt like in years, I finally just waited on the spirit for a second and I became still. And it was like the moment I became still, bam, the spirit just overwhelmed me. And I was like, that's, that's what I've been missing so much. All these fucking ideas, but the presence of being is what I've been missing so much. And I didn't have language for it, but I knew something in the experiential realm had been sorely missed for years. And so I began to develop this stillness practice and I began to open myself up to the possibility of meditation and and things. And um, that was slow because, you know, when you're a conservative Christian, meditation and things like that are demonic and they're evil. Yoga's evil. All this stuff's evil and it's wrong and it's bad and it's blah, 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 blah. But I slowly started opening myself up and what I saw was my life began to become different. My actual expression, my awareness, my intentionality, my being began to shift. And at the end of the day, Jesus' message was about abundant life, not about sorting out theological ideas so that I can fit in in a particular group and cross my fingers and make it into heaven one day. It's about the fullness of life. And I started to see that the fullness of life began to really take root. Finally, because I slowed the fuck down for a minute and dropped in to the eternal presence. And I stopped being so obsessed with all of these words and concepts and ideas and acceptance into these fucking groups. And I began to experience life in a more full and abundant way. Still going through deep depression. I had some of the most deep depression ever. Um, we did try to plant that church. I had a friend move out. I won't go on that story right now. We started to gather some people. And then one morning after one of our Sunday night gatherings, it was a good gathering. We did worship, had about 15 people there. We're off to a good start by all qualifications of church planting. Did connect cards and the whole bit, man. And I woke up the next morning and I felt the spirit just permeate my consciousness and say, it's not the right time. You're not ready yet. And I'm like, fuck. I knew it was true, but I didn't know what to make of that because I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't want to sell motorcycles again. And I'm not trained in anything and I don't have a skill or a trade or whatever. And I got, you know, all of these it's expensive to live in San Diego and I got three dependents and what do I do? But I just felt the spirit say, it's not your time yet. And my friend who was leading worship, he wanted to move back to Indiana. And so we stopped needing and he moved back and I entered into the deepest depression of my life. And, um, in 2017 then, January of 2017, I got a different job, freaking lame job, but it would actually, you know, resurface later in a good way. Pension benefits representative. Uh, It was from some staffing agency, but the point is, is that I began to feel the need to articulate my journey and my experience. And whenever I was church planting, these, these leaders and these pastors, these area pastors would ask me, who are your people that you're reaching for your church plant? Who are those that you're really trying to connect with? And I kept using this phrase that just came to me. I'm reaching more of these spiritual nomad type of people. They seem to have an awareness <clears throat> of God and of spirituality, but they're not really connected to any one religion. They might have connection to Christianity, but 
they're kind of nomadic. They flow in and out, but they have an awareness of God, but they're not really practicing a faith or whatever. So I used this language of spiritual nomad for the people that I was to be reaching with my church plant. And I woke up uh, in January 2017. I thought, fuck, man, I'm a spiritual nomad. I'm just wandering around. Like at this point, like I don't have a church plant anymore. I don't know that I have a faith anymore. I know that I have this stillness practice and I really don't know what to make of my Christian faith at all. But I'm just waltzing around trying to figure it out. And so I started to record my thoughts and called it the Spiritual Nomad Podcast in January 2017. And spare intermittently, you know, I just record things, whatever. Had some people on and I remember I did a little like series called uh, Institutional Exodus about how people are leaving the church in droves. And I remember my dad just calling me and we just had such disagreements during this time. And I remember I knew the severing was fully there whenever he said, I, I said penal substitutionary atonement theory. He got real serious and he said, it's not a theory, it's truth. And I began to share that I'm just saying that it is a theory, like it, it, it is a concept, you know, uh, of the finished work of Jesus or whatever. And I even just told him, he got really defensive. I said, you know, you're hurting me in our relationship by your response. And he said, this is truth and I can't not defend truth. I'm sorry. So essentially at the expense of our relationship, it's fine. I, I have to defend what's true. So he chose to defend that and that's fine. But it did hurt, you know? And that's what happens when you go through deconstruction is people begin to become alienated from you and you begin to become alienated from people. And further, you begin to become alienated from yourself, who you think you are, the person who you've created yourself to be, who's been informed by all of those voices and influences and traditions around you since the moment that you took incarnation, you begin to become alienated from that person that you have created and built or that has been created for you and built. And it be can become extremely daunting and scary and fearful. And most people dip their toes into this water and it's too deep, too quick, and they retreat back. And you'll see now the rise of conservative Christianity because people are not familiar with these uncharted waters. And so I trusted the spirit of truth within me as Jesus promised. The spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. Don't rely on the tradition. Jesus says, don't, don't rely on these traditions, these human concepts that you think are gods. The spirit of truth that transcends the book. God is not bound to a binding. This ultimate reality of existence that calls you from the depth of your being into the fullness of who he is called you to be, who he's manifesting to be in you and through you and as you. I use he, don't get hung up on that, okay? who the divine is becoming in you and through you. And you follow that with faithfulness. If you have courage, if you have strength, if you have stamina, if you're willing to be alienated from yourself, from your tradition and from those who love you and they still love you and you still love them. And it'll take time to find a new groove for how that relationship will function. But there will become a season of the dark night of the soul because there is no spiritual expansion without the dark night. My dark night lasted some years and I shared some of it publicly with spiritual nomad podcast, but there was also a year that I posted one episode in a year and I was just going through it, man. It was hard. It was difficult. And I felt isolated and alone working this fucking dead end insurance job. Still in insurance, which is funny, but I digress. It was not the, not the right environment for me. Underwriting was not the right environment for me. So I want to bring up this point because when we begin to feel alienated and we begin to feel isolated in the dark night, it's really tempting for us to want to grip and to grasp onto another ideology. And what came in for me is the silver bullet. And this comes in for so many people who are going through deconstruction 
and they feel so alone and they feel so isolated and they feel so hurt and they feel so misunderstood and they don't even know what they believe anymore. And they're wandering through the darkness being a nomad, just trying to find any path that will feel some sort of peace with it. It's so vulnerable for another ideology and concept to come in and to be that savior. And for so many, this is what it was for me, progressive theology came in as a silver bullet savior. Progressive Christianity came in to save the day. And so I began to find a tribe in the progressive Christian community. I began to go to a local progressive Christian church in San Diego. And then eventually, one of my friends who used to be in the vineyard too was uh, in a Disciples of Christ church here in Oceanside. And he started taking me out to breakfast before I had to go into my insurance job. And he just called out like, hey, like you are, you're designed for, for ministry. You're, you're a pastor at heart. You are a church planter. You and started to really affirm these things that I thought were dead and gone. And eventually got to the point where he's like, I have a space for you. It's part-time. It's very, I have this project, this co-working space to use the pro- church as a co-working space. And he hired me part-time. And I had to figure out how to make ends meet some other ways, but I was back in ministry and I was back in a church and I was at a progressive church and I felt like good, really good about that. And, and mind you too, I was always on the spiritual path though of expansion, you know, listening to Ram Dass, learning from Alan Watts, you know, reading other traditions, really diving deeply into Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and really understanding more of the Eastern expression. I mean, I live in San Diego, North County, Encinitas is where Yogananda lived for a decade, you know, like very influenced here with self-realization fellowship and everything. And so certainly learning as a universalist, um, seeing the golden thread run through all traditions, but really feeling a connection to my native tradition because I was born in America, a pastor's kid, trained in ministry as a pastor, church planter. I have an affinity for Jesus. And I started to see Jesus as this like left-wing political activist because that's what my silver bullet theology started to tell me. And I started working there at that progressive church and went to General Assembly for the Disciples of Christ in Iowa that year and really got a deep understanding of this progressive theology thing that I really felt like was the answer. I felt like I found the answer and it was similar to that same feeling whenever I found Mark Driscoll through my one friend who reached out to me whenever I was in YWAM. And my friend here reached out to me and started to kind of disciple me, if you will, into this way of progressivism on the absolute opposite spectrum of what happened, you know, eight years before or whatever that was. Yeah, eight years before. And I started to feel that at-homeness again with this conceptual belief of how things fit together. And I started to put together the pieces of the puzzle just like how I did, you know, with... Calvinism, and eventually then, just like with Calvinism, something within me the whole time knew that this was not fully the answer. And one day, I remember uh, riding my bike home from work at the church that I was at in Oceanside, and I was like, this isn't it. And I felt that house of cards starting to crumble too. And I'm back at square one again, but in a different way, because I have this wisdom now from lived experience. And there's a lot of other parts of this story that I'm leaving out, of course. You know, I don't want to make this video freaking days long. But I started to see this progressive theology house of cards. And what happened was, and what so many, ha- so many, so many times this happens to people in the deconstruction community. They've been indoctrinated and they've given their life to this very conservative expression of their faith. And progressive Christianity comes along as the absolute contrast of that. And so we knee-jerk react to that. And we go to the complete other side of the continuum thinking that that holds the answer. But all that's trying to do is balance the scales because everything must be in balanced harmony. And so for a season of time, it was right for me to go all the way over to the progressive side to balance out 
that conservatism that I had so programmed myself with. And then whenever I started to get way too catawampus on the other side, I realized there is a different middle way. There is a different path than this that just continues to see an enemy on the other side. Because in conservatism, where I thought the progressives or the universalists or the whoever was my enemy, on the other side, I begin to align with some of these people. But now the conservatives and the, the rigid, you know, evangelicals are my enemy. And it's just the same thing again. It's the same fundamentalism packaged in a different way. I would argue almost even more toxic, but we're not trying to put things on scales here, if you will, of what's more or less. It's just another fundamentalism. And I began to see through the absolute house of cards of both the conservatives and of the progressives. And I began to just rest again into that presence of being. And what is true about my life? What is my life actually telling me through my lived experience? What is wisdom? Because wisdom is nothing more than the divine spark that happens when you mix experience and knowledge together. When experience and knowledge come together with that spark of divinity, we get wisdom. And that wisdom was teaching me to avoid all extremes. And to allow that presence of being to be the light that shines. And to allow the spirit of truth from within to guide into all truth. And I started to see that there is deep truth in the progressive tradition. And there's also deep truth in the conservatives' traditions. And I began to see how all of this is actually working together to form something cohesive that is actually beyond polarity and duality. And I began to see this oneness that connects all things, that beyond the surface level differences and nuances, that deep beneath there is this truth, capital T truth, that holds all things together. As St. Paul says, that is in all, over all, in all, and through all. This cosmic Christ that pulls everything together, regardless of what tradition or religion or sect or creed or rite or ritual that you have oriented into your conception of reality, there's this beyond word and expressed uh, thought and theory. There's this beyondness that pulls everything together into absolute unity and that all things are necessary. That all of this dualism that we see is connected in oneness. There is not just a front side of the mountain without a back side of the mountain. There cannot be a progressive theology without a conservative theology. And that there is something true and something false about anything and everything even within ourself. And this is where the concept of the true self, false self comes in. There's not really a true self, false self. There is only the self, but it is the way that we express that and understand that and live and move and have our being in that. And so I began to feel this very non-dual reality come up within me and began to see this very contemplative path set before me that I did not find in the progressive church. And that ironically, my Christian uh, <clears throat> charismatic vineyard roots started to come back up of waiting on the spirit and being very spirit led and things, but not dogmatic in any way, resonating with, with the narrative of Christ, but not being solely into that, uh, really adopting a lot of Zen Buddhism into my life and a different even, uh, you know, practices, learning about Vedanta and things of that nature, and seeing that everything is an illusion and that there is no inherent meaning. It's the meaning that we assign to life. And we resonate with different teachers that help us turn the diamond of reality to see through new paradigms. And I love Richard Rohr's definition of salvation. It's paradigm shift. I started to see that wholeness is the purpose of life, becoming whole and giving yourself to the ongoing healing of the world to participate in that collective wholeness. That's what life's about. Love, it's simple. And then 
I left that and started Current Collective Church again and started meeting on the beach. But before I started Current Collective Church, this little window of time here, this is 2020, and uh, this story is, is, is coming to a close. But um, summer of 2020, uh, I'd been connecting with a guy named Craig Gross. He started Triple X Church, and I knew about Craig because in you know, youth group and stuff. My youth pastor had talked about triple X church, you know, and helping people, students that were addicted to porn or whatever, and uh, knew about triple X church, Craig, Craig, we connected on Instagram and uh, man, Instagram, what a double-edged sword, so much beautiful, good connection and so much bullshit too. Um, yeah. Craig connected with me there and, uh, he had a space in Santa Cruz um, where they were uh, having a retreat, a retreat center, psychedelic retreat center. And he invited me up for uh, a psilocybin journey. And uh, I didn't really know that's what I was getting myself into. Um, he was in Huntington Beach before that and we tried to connect a bunch because Huntington Beach is only 40 minutes from here. And um, didn't happen. He went up to Santa Cruz. Lockdown happened. I left the progressive church whenever all that happened because things started to get weird with COVID and beliefs and, you know, weird day, weird day, um, day and age. But uh, Craig asked for my address and he says, hey, would you want to come up to Santa Cruz on these dates? I'm like, sure, I'll come up to Santa Cruz on those dates. The week before, by the way, I, we visited Indiana and I preached at my dad's church. And it was the next weekend then that I was going to go to Santa Cruz. But I get this package in the mail with a Michael Pollan book, How to Change Your Mind, and this whole pamphlet that I needed to fill out and release form for mushrooms. <laughs> my wife is like, what is this? You know, like what's going on here? Like I knew you're going to Santa Cruz, but I didn't know that like psychedelics were involved with this. And I'm like, I didn't either, like until I got this package, like Craig just invited me to Santa Cruz. I don't know what to say. And uh, it was only a few short texts too, which became kind of a funny thing, but uh, later, but I fill out the form and I'm like, you know, I feel confident and secure enough in myself that if I don't want to participate, I know I don't have to. And um, so I drove up through Big Sur up to Santa Cruz, freaking incredible. I have such a relationship with Big Sur already. Um, I swear my wife and I and my kids met an angel there uh, like a year before it, you know, that's a whole nother story. But um, I go up and I don't know, that I, I just, I felt like it was okay. And before we dropped in on that Saturday, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit comforting me that it was okay. And so I dropped in um, with psilocybin and had one of the most profound experiences of my life, healing experience, experiences. And people were there and it was four of us and we'd all never experienced this before. And some people moved to other places and around the beautiful Santa Cruz Mountains retreat house. But I laid there and I wept and I felt like before, I mean, I was like in space and I saw myself as a part of all of this. And there was this flow, this movement that was happening in the universe. And I saw that my resistance to that, that the flow wasn't upset or anything. And it wasn't moving slow and it wasn't moving fast. It was consistent and it would just work around me. If I was not going to participate, it wasn't judging or mean or pulling me into itself or forcing. It just was moving around me. And as I just began to surrender and settle, I just began to flow with that eternal infinite flow, becoming in participation with it and becoming in that current, which is so funny because current is what we named our church, our 501c3, you know, eight years prior or whatever. So not eight years, I'm sorry, four years before. And it's just like, I was part of this current and, but then things started to come up and I, things with my dad started to come up and 
I started to see life through his lens and I had this deep empathy and compassion. I remember just weeping and I felt like there was a river flowing from within me out of my eyes and filling the pillow behind me and just the psychedelic experience, you know, but just with deep emotional healing, I cried, I wept and finally I could get up and the song Oceans from Hillsong came on. I'm tripping on psilocybin with Craig Gross and his whole team. And I'm listening to Spirit Lead Me Where My... And I'm like, oh my God, people would never get this, you know? Anyway, but it was so healing to hear worship music in that space. And I started to see all of the boogeymen that I had, you know, made straw men out of to tear down from all of the others, right? All of, you know, the evangelicals, you know, the enemy of the progressives. And I started to see all of this and through that worship music tripping and I'd already had the oneness realization before that. So it just solidified what I was already feeling was true. I was just like, man, God is so benevolent. And all of our little squanderings and bitches, bitchings that we have with each other, God just smiles upon it all in the same way that I'm a parent and my kids bicker with each other. But that deep love, acceptance, and invitation to deeper union is always still just there, regardless of all of the things that we think are big. It's mountains out of molehills. And just the benevolent presence of God just is truly transcending and encapsulating all things, including myself as a part of the whole. And I began to went outside finally and just felt the sun and just saw the whole forest just breathing and began to feel like I was like facing death and I began to be okay with death. And there was all of these symbols that would, would come up. Like off in the distance, there was this like rain cloud but like it was sunny where we were at and just God saying, there's always this rain cloud that you see, but it never will actually touch you. It will never actually harm you. The sun will always be there to shine for you. Even though you can see the storms, they're, they're not going to affect you. And just all of these gentle ways of just pure trust and faith and belief in God just overwhelmed me through that experience. And it was from that experience then that I felt so much connection with my, with God, myself, with people, with creation, with my dad, all this stuff. But then you have integration and you got to actually go live life and you got to go actually keep visiting your parents. You got to continue to love and, you know, love that covers a multitude of sins. That verse just goes to a whole different level and you begin to become a different presence in the world. One that's not so exclusive and truly one that's inclusive. And the people that bark about being so inclusive are some of the most exclusive exclusive fucking people I've ever met in my life. The woke community is a joke of inclusivism. It's ridiculous. There, I said it. Uh, it. It just, this experience just bursts all these walls. It just breaks all this stuff down. And my encouragement to any of you who are going through or have been through deconstruction, don't allow that knee-jerk reaction of another ideology to come in and to allow you to be pitted against another person again and only seeing the faults in the other person because as master yeshua once said that you don't see the plank in your own eye when you're looking at the speck in another's do your own work walk your own path have your own realization and allow love to be the overflow of your life because as you continue to see the other you will not allow the overflow of kinetic love to permeate and infiltrate every essence of your being you've got to begin to rest into that so if you are deconstructing resist the urge to yet just jump on another tribal fundamental team allow the experience of the divine to burst all of that down and break those walls down that we build out of our own insecurity and fear and need for acceptance. People are so concerned about, are you an affirming church or this or that? You only need the affirmation from within yourself. If you need an institution, an organization, another person to affirm you, that's just the mirror showing you, you need to do the work to affirm yourself. As controversial as that may be, I'm not saying 
be harmful or not accepting of another person clearly. And I hope my catalog of content will justify that to be true through my life. And the people that are in my life would show you that. But what I'm saying is you must find your affirmation from within and release the need to cling to any one or any concept or any group to bring that wholeness because wholeness is only found from deep within you. And until you awaken that salvation within, you will consistently be searching for a silver bullet. But the silver bullet is found from the void within that you continue to avoid. Don't avoid that shadow. That's where the work is. Don't avoid all of these things that keep you from experiencing the wholeness in life. They will keep you in separation. And so my story has been as a pastor's kid through conservative things, through breaking things down and deconstruction, through hyper progressive, through then church planting again and dipping my toe back into that world and having charismatics come and try to hijack the thing. So I had to pull the plug on current collective meeting. We still do things, but not we don't meet as a church anymore, at least right now. Just know that through all of this and through my experience as well, that the whole thing is moving you in a direction towards greater wholeness within you. And all of the trauma and all of the problems and all of the pain and all of the suffering can be alchemized for who the divine wants to begin and continue to be in and through your life. If you'll surrender into that flow and just participate with the goodness of what God is doing in you. And so I hope my story is an encouragement to some of you that have gone through deconstruction or just on this spiritual path. And um, I'm always available uh, for walking with people. I have a pastor's heart. I'm a spiritual director, minister, and that's not changing anytime soon. So if you need someone to walk with on the path, I'm always available. And uh, I appreciate you listening and watching um, and hopefully resonating with pieces of this story. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you on the next video.